Grace to you and peace, faith family. If you will please turn with me to, in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read the entire verse of 25. The entire verse. I know you're excited. Yeah. I know you're excited. 1 John chapter 2 verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. This is the word of God, amen. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning asking for you to impart a wisdom, an awareness, a truth. That God, you in your redemptive reality and all that you did for us on the cross, that God, you have brought us into this promise of eternal life. And that because of that promise, because of that truth, that God, we have hope. And because of that hope, God, that we are to persevere. And Father, I pray that in the midst of this this morning, that for those of us who would call you our own, I would call you our Father, our Savior, our Lord, that God, we would come into this place be met by you, by the power of your spirit, through the preaching of your word, and that, God, we would leave here with with just a calm, convicting, peaceful assurance, and that, God, we would be your people by allowing that assurance to be a part of the way in which we not only live as a family, as a community of believers, but we would live in our homes. God, we would be a people who persevere because of the promise that is before us. And Father, if there is one in here who does not know you, God, they read this kind of passage and they find themselves lost in the midst of it. That God, they too would understand that you have come to provide them eternal life by grace through faith. And so God, if there is one in here or the one that hears the sound of my voice today who does not know you as Lord and Savior, I do pray that they would come to know that before it's eternally too late. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. We are concluding our series this morning on the family. We have entitled this series, Threads. We spoke about how as we desire to live as a family, not only a a nuclear family, in other words, a husband and a wife or children, Uh, a nuclear family, the family of of biology and relationships, but also ecclesiologically, as a family, as a church, that this fits along both paradigms in the idea of us living as a family and those of us living as a spiritual family, we want to display a tapestry, a tapestry that reflects our Lord and that will be able to reflect His kingdom. And in this series, we are looking at three threads that form the warp of the tapestry of our homes. If you were here for the first message, you would have seen the warp and the woof, if you will. And the the warp are the three threads that are often unseen. You don't see these threads often in the everyday stuff of life, but these three threads that that we've, we've placed together are fundamental to the way we display it to the world. In our first thread, we examine the necessity of forgiving the past. The necessity of forgiving the past. In the second thread, we saw that we needed to have the thread of guarding in the present. So we forgive the past, we guard in the present, and now we're going to look at our third thread, and it is a thread that is so evidently missing in our homes and in our churches. Homes where... Divorce rates among believers are so high that it is statistically indistinguishable from the pagans' world around us. Churches where living life as a family is really more akin to a buffet line than it is to any type of family meal. You may be asking, what do I mean? I mean, in the church today, we accept the cheap version of church life where our process for congregational engagement is based on one question and one question alone. What's in it for me? We had some visitors recently after I was able to talk to them. You know, they 
when I asked them what they were looking for in a church, the phrase came out, we are just looking for something for us. And if the buffet, by the way, if the buffet that we offer here doesn't give you what you want, your, what your palate relishes, by the way, then by all means, what are we going to try to do? We're going to try to find another. So we come in here, and you come on Sunday after Sunday, and, you know, at first it was a good meal. But you kind of get tired of the steak and potatoes, and you just want some good sweets. So you, you, you know, obviously I'm not that sweet, so you go looking for a, 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 more, a sweeter pastor, right? You go looking for a sweeter meal to be provided for you, so you go and you find that out. And that's what many congregations are, a collection of uh, cotton candy preaching with cotton candy people who want cotton candy taste. And so like cotton candy, it gets in your mouth and it dissolves and it's sweet and it's enjoyable, but by the time you leave, it's already dissipated and disappeared. You find yourself hungry on Monday morning, wondering why in the world is this happening. Because instead of living like a family where the community finds joy in offering and participating in the meal, that they were meant to be joyed together, that what we do is we try to find something that will, by all means, provide something for us in the terms of what we, quote-unquote, desire. Instead, what we want here as a faith family, we actually use that terminology, we have used it for the past decade, that we want to serve as a faith family. Where the community comes and we find a joy in offering of the parents and the participation in the meal that is to be enjoyed together. Now listen, you know, kind of like at your family, right? At your family table. I don't know if you were like this when you were growing up. You might not get exactly what you want every time you eat. But you know what? That's okay because it's a family meal and mom only has the ingredients that she can afford and that she has in the refrigerator. And you come to that meal grateful. You come to that meal thankful. Mom, thank you. Dad, thank you for providing us this, this meal. Every now and then you get to eat what you want to eat, right? You get something and you get, man, this is delicious. But then when those meals don't come, you're able to, as a family, you can go, but yet I'm able to experience it with joy. I hope you understand the metaphor. Food was used all the way throughout the Bible as a metaphorical expression of the way we are to do church, the way are we to do to the, uh, this in community. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to engage our minds and our hearts in the third thread that's going to weave the fabric of a Christian home. And that is the thread of this, perseverance to the future. We've spoken about forgiving the past, we've looked at guarding the present, and now I want to talk to you about how we persevere to the future. There is something about perseverance. There is something about perseverance that builds a Christian home. There is something about persevering through difficulty that brings a family together. I often like to tell the young couples who get married and, you know, life is all wrapped up into, let's just say, let's just say pleasure and happiness. Let's just keep it at that. And I often tell them that the bonds of a family are often found not through pleasure and happiness, but the true bonds, the true binding of a family is often seen through persevering through difficult times. You know, I think about Memorial Day this weekend, and I thought about our military. I tell my men this all the time. And what I mean by my men, the men in my missional community and my DNA, I tell them this all the time. Gentlemen, we will be further bounded together if we endure more suffering than we ever will be bounded together when we endure more, more pleasure. You know, you think about the process of the military. What's the first thing the military does? They put you in what? Boot camp. You experience this, this suffering in a boot camp scenario, and it's through this common suffering that now you are part of a brotherhood that is very, very strong. And then, in order to go a little bit further, you go through this boot camp, and then if you want to go in any sort of special forces, you've got to go through literally what the, I think the SEALs call Hell Week. Well, that's beneficial. That's positive, right? But you go through that, and then there's a tighter bond among those. Not only did you go through boot camp, but you're able to make it through Hell Week, and you know that you've, been, you've persevered through some sort of suffering that other people have, and it, and it 
elevates that brotherhood. But you take a people through a boot camp, and there is a, there's a semblance of, of, of uh, being together, and then you take somebody through, through this, uh, this hell week, and there's a semblance of them being together, and then you take them through battle and war, and then there's a whole other type of brotherhood where brothers are willing to take bullets for you and die for you, and then there's a brotherhood that is just unpenetrable. And I would say there is a brotherhood in that that is, that, is a, that is as connected as any brotherhood in the world. Why? Because not because you experienced it through cotton candy and not because you experienced it in the midst of a vacation, but because it's so tight because you experienced it through pain and suffering. I tell my DNA that and they kind of get freaky out on me, right? They're like, wait, I say we need to invite pain and suffering in our life. Not to avoid it, but to invite it. Why? Because it's through this pain and suffering that we're actually able to persevere. And it creates a bond. Now, for some of you, you're sitting here going, I didn't have to invite it, it came to me. For some of your families, the suffering and the pain that you're going through, even in your family, it came to you. You didn't invite it, you didn't ask for it, but it's here. And let me say this, families that are able to go through these suffering moments are the families that will be stronger in the midst of some of the best times of their life. You see, we live in a culture that when difficulty arises or when gratification is not instant, we would rather abandon ship than stay on board. If I don't get immediate gratification, then I'm not going to stick through it. And if I don't get, if I don't, and if any sort of difficulty arises, it must not be God's will. Because you know, God wouldn't let me go through this. If it was His will, it would be easy, right? Yeah, because that's the New Testament. You know, that's why we listen to these TBN preachers who teach us about this wealth, health, and prosperity nonsense. And it is nonsense, right? You know, God wants you to be healthy. And wealthy. Have you not read the New Testament? Have you not read where Paul wrote most of his letters from prison? That 11 out of the 11 disciples that remained after Judas were persecuted? Have you not read their stories? I find it to be quite alarming, really. But in our passage this morning, we're introduced to something that I want to give all of this, all of us the idea of this persevering. Where do I get this idea of we're going to persevere? And this is what it says, verse 25, it says, this is the promise. We are introduced immediately to a promise. You want to speak about ideas that are not appreciated. Promises. Our promises are so vacuous today that they are more like ideas than they are actual promises. I remember a day when a man made a promise to you, and we would call it a gentleman's handshake. It meant that he was going to be there, that he was going to stick through it. When a man made a vow because his word was all that was there at the end, he would stick by his vow. He would stick by his word because if I make a promise to you, this is what I'm going to promise. When I read the Old Testament, I'm challenged. Do you read the Old Testament where vows are made or blessings are given and you're going, well, why don't you just change it? Why don't you just say, hey, I, you, you made a mistake, change it. No, because when a man made his vow and made a promise, he stuck by his promise. Because in the end, your word will be remembered. And this is what he's talking about, this idea, this idea that we, this is the promise. This is the promise that he made. The word for promise here is primarily a legal term. It's a law term which indicated a summons. And by the way, this word, this Greek word, it is only used in the New Testament for promises made by God. And what is promised? And by the way, it's not a pledge redeemed by negotiation. It's not a promise if this, if that. It's a promise redeemed by a gracious gift that is bestowed upon someone. This is the promise which he himself made. Who is he? Christ. Jesus. What was the promise? What was the gracious gift that was going to be given? Eternal life. 
eternal life. When you sit back and you think about the man who wrote 1 John would have written John, the book of John. If you turn to John chapter 3, many of you know this verse by heart, but the verse before John 3.16, John 3.15, it says, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's what verse 15, so that whoever believes in Christ has eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And who is the promise given to? The promise is given to those who would place their faith in the one who gave the promise. You see, church, the tremendous hope of the gospel is eternal life. We who are His are His indeed. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. We affirm with Christ the clarity that He gave us, the promises that He gives us. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, I want you to hear what He says. Romans chapter 8, verse 30, this is what He says. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Did you hear me? Isn't that a good promise? That those, all the way, the golden chain of redemption, that those who he predestined, he will glorify. That's a good promise. Ladies and gentlemen, why am I saying this? Because the foundation for the perseverance of our homes is the fact that we who are in Christ will persevere. We will persevere. We will experience eternal life. Paul would write in Ephesians, Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to what he writes. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 through 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, there's the activity of faith, belief, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What's that word? Sealed. What were you sealed with? The Holy Spirit of what? Promise. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Oh, that's truth. That's that's truth. That's a promise. It says we are sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is our pledge. The reason that we will persevere is because Christ's perseverance. The reason that we in the church will persevere to the end is because Christ has promised He will persevere to the end. You see, church, our hope does not lie in a formless void. Our hope lies in the work of the person and the name of none other than Jesus Christ. And to understand what perseverance is helps us distinguish what it is not. And you need to listen to this. John Murray once said this, and this was so important. He said, perseverance does not mean that everyone who professes faith in Christ says that they are a Christian and who is accepted as a believer in the fellowship of the saints joins a church, is secure for eternity, and may entertain the assurance of eternal salvation. In other words, just because you say that you're a Christian and just because you go to church doesn't assure you eternal life. Because I've met many who say they are believers. And I've met many who go to church. Our Lord Himself warned His followers who believed in Him. He said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, the criterion by which we are true disciples might be distinguished, and that criterion is what? The continuation in His word. Where is my assurance lie? My assurance doesn't lie in something that happened 20 years ago. 
My assurance lies in the fact that I am continuing to persevere in Him. I am continuing to persevere. So our focus this morning, church, is what does it take to persevere? What does it take for our homes and for our churches to persevere together in community? And as I studied God's Word, I came across four qualities. Four things that I think is going to begin to kind of provide us with, the, with this thread of perseverance. And the first one begins in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Verses 13 through 14. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. Listen to the word. Brethren... I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The first word that I want you to know that's going to take a family in order to persevere is this word. Ready? It's a word that we don't like today. It's a word that we reject a lot in our culture today. Commitment. Perseverance is unsustainable without commitment. Winston Churchill once said, it is not enough that we do our best. Sometimes we have to do what is required. I had a man in my office just a while back, and he was talking about divorcing his wife. And he said, I'm doing my best. And my best is not good enough. And he said, so it's over. And I looked at him and I said, dear sir, sometimes, Winston Churchill once said, sometimes we don't have to do our best. We have to do what's required. The decay of the family has come at the expense of a misunderstanding of what this kind of covenant means, what this kind of commitment means. You see, when we talk about it in our faith family, one of the things that we do is we talk about marriage as a covenant. Actually, we, as a faith family, we talk about if you want to call our covenant here as a faith family, when you come and you decide to be a part of our faith family, we call it the covenant of Pine Summit or the covenant of Christ the King. Why do we call it that? It's for you to understand what that, what that, what that relationship is going to look like. And we get this idea from the, from the Bible. Jesus is the author of the new covenant, the new covenant in Christ. He, there is a covenant. What does it mean for us to covenant? In a marriage, we call it a marriage covenant. And what we have done is we have misinterpreted or we have focused or we have changed the idea of what the covenant bonds of marriage and the covenant of a faith family looks like. We have supplemented our marriage with contracts instead of covenants. And why? Because we have a warped theology. Let me explain it to you. A contract, ladies and gentlemen, is an agreement between two parties to a set of propositions. And when either party doesn't fulfill or avoid a proposition, this in turn breaks the contract and avoids the agreement. That's a contract. So my wife and I, this is what a marriage contract looks like. I'm going to marry you. And we're going to be in a contract. I'm going to fulfill this. You're going to fulfill that. If you don't fulfill that, boom, ipso facto, you avoided the contract. And now the contract is no longer void. Does everybody understand that? You go into a, con a business contract with somebody. You, you get into them and you go, I'm going to do this part. You're going to do this part. If any time you don't do this part, then I am no longer required to do my part. The contract is null and void. Everybody get that, right? That's the way we approach marriage. That's the way we approach church. I'm committed to my end of this bargain as long as you're committed to your end of the bargain. If you don't hold up to your end, then I can void the agreement altogether and I don't hold, to hold up to my end. Oh, but a covenant is different. A covenant is when both parties agree to a set of propositions, but when one violates the set of propositions, the, older, the other says, I'm going to hold to mine, though. That's a difference. If you don't hold to yours, I am still bound to hold to mine. 
You see, in our faith family, we're in a covenant together. So if I don't hold to my end of the bargain as an elder, you as a congregation are still responsible to hold to your end of the bargain. If you don't hold to your end of the bargain, I'm still responsible to hold to my end of the bargain. All right, all right, when, 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 when we get into church discipline issues here in our faith family, and yes, we do, and yes, we have, oftentimes what I hear is, well, I'll just leave your church. You don't have that option when you join a covenant. Well, I don't want to go under church. You don't have that option. We are in a covenant. I am bound by a covenantal agreement to still do what I am called to do, regardless if you do what you are called to do with not. Hey, and I want to tell you this. A lot of you are freaking out right now. This is a good thing when it comes to Jesus, by the way. Because if we had a contract, we would have been done a long time ago. You see, that's the problem with people who believe you can lose your salvation. You have a salvation that's based on a contract. I made a contract with Jesus, and this is the way it sounds. Oh, I accepted him. You see how the contract language we use? Oh, I accepted him. Oh, oh, I, I, uh, uh, it's me and Jesus, and, and, and you know, uh, I, I'm not doing real well right now, so because I'm not doing real well, Jesus isn't going to do real well. So he's going to reject. No, 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 this is a covenant agreement. When Jesus uh, gave me the faith to believe in Him, and by faith, and by grace, through faith, I came to believe in Him, and I trusted in Him, I want you to know, He is going to hold up to His end of the bargain. Even when I fail. This is why in the Bible it says, even when I am faithless, He is faithful. And if you don't think that is good news, you try to leave the, live the week that I live. I don't know about you, I don't know if you walk in here on this Sunday with perfection, but I know I need a Jesus who's going to hold up to his promise of eternal life. I need, I need to know that. This ain't no contract. It's not like he's going to go, okay, null and void, it's done. He's going to say, no, I made a covenant with this man, and with this man I will fulfill my covenant. Isn't that good news? I made a covenant with my wife, and I'm going to fulfill that covenant. I made a covenant to you as your elder. I'm going to fulfill that covenant. I made a covenant to be a part of this church. I'm going to fulfill that covenant. See, in a contract marriage, it's married until you do something I don't like. Or you can't do something I want you to do. You see that? That's a contract marriage. I'm going to do something until I don't, I'll, I'll, I'm going to be married to you until you do something I don't like, or I'm going to be married to you until you can't do something that I want you to do. In a covenantal marriage, it sounds like this. Listen, till death do us part. You see, a family who operates from a Christian worldview is a family who covenants together with God and with one another. Our God is a covenant-keeping God, not a contract-keeping God. He will keep His covenant, covenantal promises regardless. And it's this type of commitment that produces perseverance. Jesus would tell us about this. And I love it. I love it. Some of you are scared to death because you're not used to people abiding, abiding by their promises. But not, not my Savior, not my God. My God tells me that He's going to stick by His promises. And this is the way Jesus said it. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that good news? That's good news. Oh my goodness, that's good news. A family commitment is rooted in an a priori commitment to Christ himself. For he is the head of the body, the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ what? Love the church. He is the a priori commitment to our commitments. Men, you want to know how much you're to love your wife? As much as Christ loved the church. Boom. Drop it. And as we have seen, Christ is committed all the way to the point of eternal life. And I want to tell you this, where you find commitment in a family, you will always find security. Do you know how many times I've counseled people who are in the midst of not finding commitment from their spouse, and what's the one thing that they're looking for? Security. 
I don't know if he or she are going to be here tomorrow. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where we're going to be. This lack of commitment creates insecurity. And this insecurity creates difficulty. And this difficulty creates problems, yes? I can't tell you how many times my wife's come to me. Uh, Donnie, I really messed up now. I can't tell you how many times I went to my wife and said, uh, Shay, I've really messed up now. I'll never forget when I lost the job that I had. I was making very good money selling pagers in Pensacola. For you young people, pagers are, um, Pagers are an electronic device that would tell you somebody wants to talk to you. And you had to find a phone and you had to call them. It's crazy. We used to have them. We used to wear them on our hips and it was real cool until it wasn't. So we had these pagers and I was making very good money selling pagers because that was a long-term process, a long-term, you know, hope. And I lost my job. I walked into my wife. I'll never forget it. We were right between the washing machine and the dryer, right in front of them. And I broke down and I said, I don't know how we're going to make it. Do you want to know my wife's response was? Me neither, but we're going to make it. That commitment in a family, that commitment in a marriage, that commitment among husbands and wives and children and parents, you look at your child and sometimes our children, they grow up and they, the reason that they express this in marriages is because they haven't expressed it, experienced it in their father, from their father, from their mother. They had a mom and a dad who was never committed to them. And by the way, if you're visiting with us and you think I am unaware of these things, you don't know my story, sit back, hold on, hold on. Don't, don't judge Father, uh, the son of an alcoholic father who abandoned him. I know what it's like to always desire the hope that your dad will see you and he had no commitment to you because he had more commitment to a six-pack of Milwaukee's best at that. Ugh. Ugh. I mean, now that I'm older, he could have had a better beer. I mean, even a better beer would have been a little bit better, but Milwaukee's best. <laughs> Died of strokes of the liver. I know what it's like not to be accepted. I know what it's like to have a father who does not committed to you. And I know what it's like to be a father who's going to be committed to your children through their good, through their bad, through their pain, through their struggles. So the first is commitment, security. Second is acceptance. Acceptance. Let's turn to Romans. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, I want to read verses 5 through 7. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see Christ again. We see persevere in Christ. Why? Because He has accepted us. Ephesians 1, 6 says, To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. I no longer stand before God condemned because I am in Him. You see, faith family, we accept one another in Christ as the display of the glorious gospel of grace. When you got married, what did you vow? You heard me say this a couple of weeks. You weren't vowing a love at the moment. You were vowing a future love. We hope you love one another at the altar. You are vowing a future love. And what did we say to one another? We said we had a commitment to one another. And what are the words that came out of our, of our mouths, most of you? For better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to know that you stand before one another naked. Not necessarily physically, but I want, don't want to escape that, escape that truth either. That you stand before one another naked and you are fully accepted just as you are because you are in Christ. Husbands, have you heard this from your wife? 
It comes in various forms. But one way you are often asked is you're sitting there in intimate moments and your wife is being vulnerable with you and she asks, will you love me when? Will you love me when I'm old? Will you love me when I'm wrinkled? You see, it's the validation of acceptance that no matter what you have done, we will persevere. It was said by an oncologist. I was talking to him once, and he said this. He said that almost all women will stand by their men, but very few men will stand by their women. He says, you have a, you have a man who's coming to cancer uh, uh, treatments, and almost every time a man comes to a cancer treatment, the woman is standing next to him. But hardly ever does a woman come to a cancer treatment and her man is there. I'm not shaming, I'm not guilting, but uh, uh, providing guilt here, what I'm trying to say is it's, it's descriptive. But women, let me, let me say this, your husband also needs to know that he's accepted by you. Paul would write, wives, respect your husbands. You see, the respect is the validation of your acceptance of them. I want to assure you that demeaning your husband in front of others is a sure way of placing him on an island that will take a long time for you to reach again because usually it's reached by a canoe with paddles and it's a long way off, baby. Our children, our children need to know that they find acceptance. Our children need to know and understand they are our children. You are mine. You will never not be my child. Especially your daughters. Remember, remember church, your father accepted less than perfection because he accepted absolute perfection in your place. The London Baptist Confession says it like this, Yet notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Does your children know that they are fully accepted in your home with all their weaknesses and imperfections? A family will persevere when we, when we allow one another to fail and to try again and to fail and to try again and to fail and to try again. How many young men have I seen in my ministry and in my life, young men that have been with me as a, as a student pastor and throughout who were always looking for their father to validate their, their acceptance, was always looking for their father to say, will you accept me? And because their fathers never accepted them, they went looking for other men to provide that acceptance. Why do you think gangs are so big? Do you understand why gangs are so big? Do you understand why communities that you look at and go, why would our children ever desire to be a part of that sinful reality? Why would they ever desire to find that? Because when they go there, they find acceptance. Young men find acceptance in gang activity because at least they know that they're a part of a group of people that will be with them and will stick with them. And don't get me started on my girls. Don't get me started on women. Don't get me started on daughters. Daughters go looking for love in all the wrong places. They go looking for men to validate them because they're looking for acceptance. Why are they go looking for acceptance? If your daughter ever comes home with a man that you look at and go, what in the world are you thinking the first thing you need to do is to go to the bathroom and punch yourself in the face. I'm kidding. Don't do that. I'm kidding. Don't, don't punch yourself in the face. That would be hurtful. But you do need to deal with it. 
Because what are you doing as a father, as a husband? What are you giving them the projection of? You don't have, you, listen to me, young girls, listen to me. If your dad ain't doing this, you listen to your pastor, if I am your pastor. You don't need the acceptance of any little man. You hear me? You don't need no man's acceptance. None of them. Now you see the way I talk to my daughters, right? You don't need no man to accept you. I will. I accept you just like you are. Don't Jesus accepts you because of all he did on the cross for you. You don't need no man to validate you. You stand up on your feet and you stand there and you look at Christ. And, but once you find a good godly man, you love him until the day you die. Oh, I could preach. I'm going to stay away from it though. I don't want to get in trouble. The world and its cultural mayu is going to provide your children with images and paradigms that fight against them, and they need to know that they are accepted. A family whose thread of perseverance is as strong as a family that accepts one another in Christ, warts and all. You want to know one of the hardest things to do as a pastor? Accept one another, warts and all. Right? But in Christ we can. If you are in Christ, I accept you warts and all. If you're in Christ. Let's do it together. And a church, by the way, that rejects people is going to be a very dangerous location. Because what you become, you become isolated, insular. You become one that no longer promotes the gospel, the good news. You promote one that creates a division. You come to Christ and you are in Christ, warts and all, and we're going we're gonna to accept you into our family and we're all going to be built into the image of Christ. Always speaking the truth in love, yes? Now, I know what some of you are looking at me. Some of you are going, oh, you mean everyone? Even those people? You were once those people, don't forget it. I don't accept what, they, I don't accept what everyone does. It's crazy to me. I have this conversation with people all the time. I said, you know what? I think the greatest opportunity, I was just talking to our missional community just the other day, I think the greatest opportunity that we have in the church today is to eat with sinners and gluttons. That's the greatest opportunity we have, eat with sinners and gluttons. Oh, oh, eat with sinners and gluttons. Who would do that? Uh, Jesus? but won't they stain me? You whitewashed tomb, you hypocrite. You are not stained from the outside, you are stained from the inside. You see, we are in Christ. Uh, I'm going to move on. All right, so we have commitment, we have acceptance. Number three, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.12. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Not only do you need to find uh, a commitment in order to persevere, not only do you need acceptance to persevere, but I want to tell you this, and thirdly, you have to have faith to persevere. The third quality of perseverance is faith. Not blind, wistful thinking, but a faith that's built on trust, truth, and transformation. You see, for the Christian faith is rooted in truth based on facts. Our faith is grounded in justified truth, not speculative possibilities. But for the Christian faith, it's also not solely based on reason. Christian faith is faith-seeking understanding. That which has been revealed to us as truth reasonably leads us to trust in those things which may remain mysterious or that has been revealed in part, yet we may not understand the whole. So we trust in the truth we know so that we are able to trust in the truth we don't. Christian faith is when truth and trust come together and when we find transformation. Our marriages and our families will demonstrate this to the world. We place our faith first in Christ and then because we place our faith in Christ, we are able to place our faith in one another. Show me a marriage that isn't based on truth and trust or in faith, and I will show you a marriage spiraling to its inevitable end. Often it is in times of trials when trust becomes the most vulnerable and verifiable. 
It may be true that trust can be found during the courting phase. It may be true that trust can be demonstrated at the wedding. But young people, listen to me. Trust is established over time because the truth of our trust is often revealed over time. To trust in the truth of Christ is to believe in His promises. And if we trust in those truths, His his word promises, we will persevere. You see, church, ladies and gentlemen, in your faith family, you've got to have faith in one another. And the more I come to trust my wife, the more I come to believe and I know about her. The more I come to know about her, the more I come to trust in her. And that truth and that trust comes to bring about transformation. And when any, either of those are broken, when I either I have come to believe in something that has been shown to be a lie, or I have come to trust in, I'm sorry, trust in something that has come to be in, believe a lie, or I know the truth and now I don't trust in it. When either of those two are broken, you're always going to find a brokenness in marriage. And probably, most likely, highly likely, I have seen this many, many times, not to say it's always the case, but I have seen it many, many times. When those two are there, you have to provide what? We go back to our other messages. You have to either forgive the past and you have to guard in the present. And then you will persevere to the future. When families demonstrate a faith in Christ and in one another, we are putting the gospel on display. And isn't that what we're supposed to be, church? As Christ the King, aren't we supposed to declare Him as our King and demonstrate His kingdom to the world? Yes. How do we do that? We've got to have faith in one another. We've got to trust one another. We've got to believe in one another because we believe in Christ. And then lastly, fourthly, is in 1 Peter Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 12-13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you were sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. The fourth thing that I have found that is necessary in a family that perseveres is preparation. Preparation. Y'all may find that to be awkward, but I need you to listen to me. You see, I'm from Pensacola, Florida, born and bred here my entire life. And one thing I know about June 1st, it's the beginning of hurricane season. And we all know and know and understand this, especially for those of you who have journeyed through it with us. I've been through a minute, right? I've been through some hurricanes from Elena, Frederick, Opal, Danny, Ivan. I could keep going on. Sally, I could keep going on and on and on about all the hurricanes I've been through. And here's one thing I've come to understand. When the wind is blowing and the rain is sideways, it's time to hunker down and survive. It's too late at that point to start filling up your gas tanks. It's too late to go to Walmart for some groceries. Let me tell you what's at Walmart. Nothing. It's too late to start boarding up your windows, and it's too late to add flood coverage to your insurance policy. You're in the storm now, bruh. Hunker down and survive. You see, the time to prepare for the storm is in the calm. Peter wrote, the trials of testing will come. Paul would write it another way. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7. through 7. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort." who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were also comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also is our comfort in abundance through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which is an effective and the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you, sh- as you are shares of our sufferings, so also are you shares 
of our comfort. Did you catch the terms? Afflictions, sufferings, comfort. I'm telling you, church, listen to me. It's not a matter of will it happen, but it's a matter of when it happens. Husbands and wives, I'm letting you know the storm is coming. For some of you, the storm has already come. Some of you are in the midst of the storm. Some of you, it's raining. Wind is sideways. Wind is is blowing. The water is sideways. The rain is sideways. And you're just looking at it. And you're trying to figure out what's the future going to look like. Why did this happen in the past? Hold on. I was just telling somebody this this very week. When the storm is blowing, when the fog has descended upon you and you can't see, that's when you, you shorten your refractory period and you just make it day by day, step by step. But then when you get out of that storm, you're able to look back and see, see a couple things. You can see God's grace. You can see the, all the mistakes you made in preparation so you don't get there again. Because if you don't learn from your past, you're, you're, bound, to, you're bound to fail in the future the same way you did. And you look at it from this perspective. I just got out of a storm, I'm in this calm now, and I'm about to head back into another one. Because I don't know if you've seen this in your life or not, but life in this world is storm after storm after storm. And some of you are looking at me like going, well, that's negative. Well, I'm not here to be a positive mental thinker for you this is a broken world and for me to sit up and say it's going to be it's just candy it's it's gumdrops and candy canes for the rest of your life believe in jesus believe in jesus and it'll be candy candy canes and gumdrops for the rest of your life it'll be it'll be wealth and health and prosperity The problem with that kind of nonsense is you're not speaking to people who just got a a cancer diagnosis. You're not speaking to wives whose husbands have left them. You're not speaking to children who are having to bury their kids. So why don't you just take all of that and shut up and be truthful and honest with people? Because I want you to listen to me very carefully. I got good news in the midst of it, though. Because I know the ones who can hold up, I know the one who can hold up his hands and calm the wind and the waves in the midst of the storm. I know the one who was asleep in the bottom of the boat as the storm passed because he was so at peace. And I know the one who's going to take me through this storm as well. For us to not understand this, it would be detrimental to our discipleship. It would be like me being a military recruiter, saying to young men, hey, come and join us. And I want you to, when you come and join us, guess what you're going to be able to do? You're going to be able to wear all the medals. You're going to be able to walk in all the parades. And you're going to be able to be honored among all of those people. You're going to be able to stand at all of our ceremonies and be clapped at. And you're going to be able to be saluted. And you're going to be able to be praised and all that stuff. It's just, that's all you're ever going to experience. Well, sign me up. And then you sign on the dotted line. And then you get that phone call. You will be deployed to a war-torn area. And you will have to experience pain and suffering and possible death. May we never be deceived like this, church. Christ himself said, count the cost. I want to tell you some things here, and I'm concluding on this. It is true. Oh, I want to tell you this. It is so true that we as believers experience life's greatest joy, and we have our greatest comfort because we are in Christ. It's not in the absence of the storm. Don't look at me and say it's because you don't experience it. I experience just as many storms as you experience. But the anchor holds. The anchor holds. 
I want you to listen to what Spurgeon said. It's a quite lengthy quote, but I found it to be so powerful I couldn't stop anywhere in it. Listen to what he said, and I quote, Soldier of Christ, if thou enlisteth, thou will have to do hard battle. There is no bend of down for thee, bed of down for thee. There is no riding to heaven in a chariot. The rough way must be trodden. Mountains must be climbed. Rivers must be forged. Dragons must be fought. Giants must be slain. Difficulties must be overcome and great trials must be borne. It is not a smooth road to heaven, believe me. For those who have gone but a very few steps therein have found it to be a very rough one. It is a pleasant one. It is the most delightful in all the world, but it is not easy in itself. It is only pleasant because of the company, because of the sweet promises on which we lean, because of our beloved who walks with us through all the rough and thorny breaks of this vast wilderness. Christian, expect trouble. Count it not strange, he quotes from the Bible, concerning the fiery trials as though some strange thing has happened to thee. For as true as thou art a child of God, thy Savior hath left thee for his legacy. In the world you will have tribulation. In me you will have peace. If I had no trouble, I would not believe myself one of the family. Do you hear it? If I had never had a trial, I would not think myself an heir of heaven. Children of God must not, shall not escape the rod. Earthly parents may spoil their children, but the heavenly Father shall never his. Because whom he loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he hath chosen. His people must suffer. Therefore, expect it, Christian. If thou art a child of God, believe it. Look for it. And when it comes, say this. Well, suffering, I foresaw thee. Thou art no stranger. I have looked for thee continually. You cannot tell how much it will lighten your trials if you would wait them with resignation. In fact, make it a wonder if you get through a day easily. Make it a wonder if you remain a week without persecution. Think it a remarkable thing. And if you should perchance live a month without heaving a sigh for your, from your inmost heart, think it a miracle of miracles. But when the trouble comes, you are able to say, Ah, this is what I've been looking for. If you find yourself in the calm, I want you to look around you. Where in your life are you finding apathy or boredom or frustration? Rejoice in the season, but prepare for the storm. Renew your commitment now, because hurricane season in the life of a family is year-round. Hurricane season in the life of a family is year-round. Hurricane season in the life of a community of faith is year-round. It often doesn't come with a warning. And can I be honest with you? From my experience, even when it does come with a warning, we ignore it. Perseverance of the saints' church is the promise not contracted by God, but covenanted by God. For those of us who have experienced abandonment in our life, as I have, I want to give you great truth that He, our God, our Savior, our Lord, has promised eternal life to those whom He's called. So our perseverance with one another is a demonstration of the gospel. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it that some families just seem to get through it all? It's because their lives, their marriages, and their families are a demonstration of the gospel of Jesus. You see, a message of perseverance inspires those who are His to fight the good fight of faith because He is faithful to redeem all things for His glory. Every Christian woman married to a Christian man who is truly living out the gospel identity in the home is to bring your appreciation, but no matter what happens, a true Christian man will not abandon his responsibility. And it changes the way we as believers live in the midst of our homes. Perseverance is no longer seen as a task to be accomplished 
but it's an identity to be enjoyed. When we persevere, we are demonstrating God's grace to one another. And I am looking on the parts on the, in the faces of families and the faces of many of you, you have never known what that means. You have never known to be a group with a group of people who promised to be with you, to be committed to you, to accept you, to live in the faith, and to be prepared for whatever disasters may come and that will be there with you. I was talking to a young man just a couple weeks ago on the threat of losing his job due to a moral integrity issue. I was laughing. And you kind of get this sense that he was frustrated that I was laughing. Just a little bit. And I looked at him and I said, My dear friend, you're not alone. You are a part of a church that has committed themselves to you. You're not alone. Whatever trial and tribulation you're going to go through, you're not alone. You have a hundred people who are going to surround you and love you and take care of you. We love you and your family. Obviously, if you did it in sin and there were consequences of your sin, there would be true situations and circumstances and consequences for that. But we are here for you, warts and all. And some of you have never known that kind of love. You've never known that kind of commitment. And the only way I can say it is this. I look for this sort of perseverance through my Savior. Men, you may be the husband, uh, you may be the husband of a wife, the father of a family. You may be leading a family and you go, Donnie, I don't know what that looks like. Let me tell you something, brother and sister. I don't know. I didn't know what it looked like. I had no clue. I had to find it. I had to learn about it. And guess where I learned it? None other than Jesus. I looked at Christ as my Father, as my Savior. I looked, at my fa- I looked at God as my Father. I looked at Christ as my Savior. I looked at the Spirit as my empower. And I came to Him and I said, will you help me? And by God's grace and mercy, He has led me through some many, 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 many storms. So I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're, you're looking at your life and there's been a diagnosis, a prognosis, and you're going, hey, I'm about to enter into a great storm. I don't know if you're in the middle of your storm. Or I don't know if you just came out of the storm and you're on the other side breathing some sort of sigh of relief. But I do know this. I do know the only way our families and our congregation are going to make it is if we persevere. If we look to the future with perseverance, we look to the past with forgiveness, and we look to the present in protection and guarding. Can we do that in our homes? And would we be willing to do that together? And if we will, I'm going to go ahead and make you a promise. The promise is this, that God will be with us no matter what. We please stand to your feet as we respond to God's word. If you're in here this morning and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you do not have the promise of eternal life on your heart and you are unaware of this in your own life because of the fact that you are lost and you are without Him, you've pushed away from God in your life and you don't want to have nothing to do with Him and now you do, what I would tell you is right where you are, believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior. By grace, through faith, accept Him and believe in Him and trust in Him. Trust in Him. Out of that, the first identifying reality of our salvation, the first um, outward expression of that faith is baptism. It is to say that I now will trust in Christ for my life and I will be baptized, which means to be dunked. The word is baptizo, which literally means to be dunked. It's to be plunged beneath the water and to be brought back up, to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the outward expression of an inward reality. If you have not believed in Jesus, we would call you to do that, and we would ask that you would fulfill that promise and that truth of that, to fulfill the obedience to that through baptism. If you don't know what that means, you can get with me or anybody else in this congregation after that, and we would set it up for you, and we would help you do that. That's God knows. Everybody in here who is a covenant member has been baptized. 
So it's something that we would rejoice with you and for you in. However, if you push away and you say, hey, I, I'm not, I don't want to believe in Christ, I'm not going to believe in Him, we respect that. But this next part that I'm going to speak about is for those of us who are in Christ. So if you are here and you are not with Christ, you are more than welcome to walk up and to see all the things that we're doing. But we would ask for you to please do not participate in the elements. The Lord's Supper is meant for those who call Him Lord. And to participate in the elements is to identify with Him as your Savior. So we would ask for you to do that. You don't have to be the member of our church. You don't have to be a covenant member of our faith family. You ain't even got to be a Baptist. (laughs) You can come and participate in the Lord's Supper with us as we participate in those things which remind us of His body and His blood and His covenant, as we will see. So before we come to this place, we as a faith family and as those of you who are in like-minded faith with us, we do not want to enter into this place in an unworthy manner. So we come to God and we, we confess our sin before him that has been revealed to us through the preaching of his word so that we don't come to this table in a way that, in which would not bring honor to these elements. So faith family and those of you who are believers with me, will you please bow your head in silent prayer and go before our great God and King confessing our sin and asking him to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all of our righteousness. Let us pray.